Chapter One, Part Two of The Betrothed. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Betrothed by Alessandro Manzoni. Chapter One, Part Two. Don Abondio, who a few moments before would have given one of his eyes to have got rid of them, now wished to prolong the conversation and modify the treaty. In vain they would not listen, but took the path along which he had come and were soon out of sight, singing a ballad, which I do not choose to transcribe. Poor Don Abondio stood for a moment with his mouth open as if enchanted, and then he too departed, taking that path which led to his house, and hardly dragging one leg after the other, with a sensation of walking on crab-claws, and in a frame of mind, which the reader will better understand, after having learnt somewhat more of the character of this personage, and of the sort of times in which his lot was cast. Don Abondio, the reader may have discovered it already, was not born with the heart of a lion. Besides this, from his earliest years, he had had occasion to learn that the most embarrassing of all conditions in those times was that of an animal without claws and without teeth which yet, nevertheless, had no inclination to be devoured. The arm of the law by no means protected the quiet, inoffensive man who had no other means of inspiring fear. Not, indeed, that there was any want of laws and penalties against private violence. Laws came down like hail. Crimes were recounted and particularized with minute prolixity. Penalties were absurdly exorbitant and if that were not enough, capable of augmentation in almost every case, at the will of the legislator himself and of a hundred executives. The forms of procedure studied only how to liberate the judge from every impediment in the way of passing a sentence of condemnation. The sketches we have given of the proclamations against the bravos are a feeble but true index of this. Notwithstanding, or rather in great measure for this reason, these proclamations, republished and reinforced by one government after another, served only to attest most magniloquently the impotence of their authors, or if they produced any immediate effect, it was for the most part to add new vexations to those already suffered by the peaceable and helpless at the hands of the turbulent, and to increase the violence and cunning of the latter. Impunity was organized and implanted so deeply that its roots were untouched, or at least unmoved, by these proclamations. Such were the asylums, such were the privileges of certain classes, privileges partly recognized by law, partly borne with envious silence, or decried with vain protests, but kept up in fact and guarded by these classes, and by almost every individual in them, with interested activity and punctilious jealousy. Now impunity of this kind, threatened and insulted, but not destroyed by the proclamations, was naturally obliged, on every new threat and insult, to put in force new powers and new schemes to preserve its own existence. So it fell out in fact, and on the appearance of a proclamation for the restraint of the violent, these sought in their power new means more apt in effecting that which the proclamations forbade. The proclamations, indeed, could accomplish at every step the molestation of a good sort of men who had neither power themselves nor protection from others. 
because, in order to have every person under their hands, to prevent or punish every crime, they subjected every movement of private life to the arbitrary will of a thousand magistrates and executives. But whoever, before committing a crime, had taken measures to secure his escape in time to a convent or a palace, where the beery had never dared to enter, whoever, without any other measures, bore a livery which called to his defence the vanity and interest of a powerful family or order, such an one was free to do as he pleased, and could set at naught the clamour of the proclamations. Of those very persons to whom the enforcing of them was committed, some belonged by birth to the privileged class, some were dependent on it as clients, both one and the other by education, interest, habit, and imitation, had embraced its maxims, and would have taken good care not to offend it for the sake of a piece of paper pasted on the corners of the streets. The men entrusted with the immediate execution of the decrees, had they been enterprising as heroes, obedient as monks, and devoted as martyrs, could not have had the upper hand, inferior as they were in number, to those with whom they would have been engaged in battle, with the probability of being frequently abandoned, or even sacrificed, by those who abstractedly, or, so to say, in theory, set them to work. But besides this, these men were, generally, chosen from the lowest and most rascally classes of those times. Their office was held base even by those who stood most in fear of it, and their title a reproach. It was therefore but natural that they, instead of risking, or rather throwing away, their lives in an impracticable undertaking, should take pay for inaction, or even connivance at the powerful, and reserve the exercise of their execrated authority and diminished power for those occasions where they could oppress without danger, i.e., by annoying pacific and defenseless persons. The man who was ready to give, and expecting to receive, offense every moment, naturally seeks allies and companions. Hence the tendency of individuals to unite into classes was in these times carried to the greatest excess. New societies were formed, and each man strove to increase the power of his own party to the greatest degree. The clergy were on the watch to defend and extend their immunities, the nobility their privileges, the military their exemptions. Tradespeople and artisans were enrolled in subordinate confraternities, lawyers constituted a league, and even doctors a corporation. Each of these little oligarchies had its own peculiar power. In each, the individual found it an advantage to avail himself, in proportion to their authority and vigor, of the united force of the many. Honest men availed themselves of this advantage for defense. The evil-disposed and sharp-witted made use of it to accomplish deeds of violence, for which their personal means were insufficient, and to ensure themselves impunity. The power, however, of these various combinations was very unequal, and especially in the country, a rich and violent nobility, having a band of bravos, and surrounded by a peasantry accustomed by immemorial tradition, and compelled by interest or force to look upon themselves as soldiers of their lords, exercised a power against which no other league could have maintained effectual resistance. Our abondio, not noble, not rich, not courageous, was therefore accustomed from his very infancy 
to look upon himself as a vessel of fragile earthenware, obliged to journey in company with many vessels of iron. Hence he had very easily acquiesced in his parents' wish to make him a priest. To say the truth, he had not reflected much on the obligations and noble ends of the ministry to which he was dedicating himself. To ensure something to live upon with comfort, and to place himself in a class revered and powerful, seemed to him two sufficient reasons for his choice. But no class whatever provides for an individual or secures him beyond a certain point, and none dispenses him from forming his own particular system. Don Abondio, continually absorbed in thoughts about his own security, cared not at all for those advantages which risked a little to secure a great deal. His system was to escape all opposition, and to yield where he could not escape. In all the frequent contests carried on around him between the clergy and the laity, in the perpetual collision between officials and the nobility, between the nobility and magistrates, between bravos and soldiers, down to the pitched battle between two rustics arising from a word and decided with fists or poniards, an unarmed neutrality was his chosen position. If he were absolutely obliged to take a part, he favored the stronger, always, however, with a reserve, and an endeavor to show the other that he was not willingly his enemy. It seemed as if he would say, Why did you not manage to be stronger? I would have taken your side then. Keeping a respectful distance from the powerful, silently bearing their scorn, when capriciously shown in passing instances, answering with submission when it assumed a more serious and decided form, obliging, by his profound bows and respectful salutations, the most surly and haughty to return him a smile, when he met them by the way, the poor man had performed the voyage of sixty years without experiencing any very violent tempests. It was not that he had not too his own little portion of gall in his disposition, and this continual exercise of endurance, the ceaseless giving reasons to others, these many bitter mouthfuls gulped down in silence, had so far exasperated it, that had he not an opportunity sometimes of giving it a little of its own way, his health would certainly have suffered. But because there were in the world, close around him, some few persons whom he knew well to be incapable of hurting, upon them he was able now and then to let out the bad humor so long pent up, and take upon himself, even he, the right to be a little fantastic, and to scold unreasonably. Besides, he was a rigid censor of those who did not guide themselves by his rules, that is, when the censure could be passed without any the most distant danger. Was any one beaten? He was at least imprudent. Any one murdered? He had always been a turbulent meddler. If any one, having tried to maintain his right against some powerful noble, came off with a broken head, Don Abondio always knew how to discover some fault, a thing not difficult, since right and wrong are never divided with so clean a cut that one party has the whole of either. Above all, he declaimed against any of his brethren, who at their own risk took the part of the weak and oppressed against the powerful oppressor. This he called paying for quarrels and giving one's legs to the dogs. He even pronounced with severity upon it, as a mixing in profane things, 
to the loss of dignity to the sacred ministry. Against such men he discoursed, always, however, with his eyes about him or in a retired corner, with greater vehemence in proportion as he knew them to be strangers to anxiety about their personal safety. He had, finally, a favorite sentence, with which he always wound up discourses on these matters, that a respectable man who looked to himself and minded his own business could always keep clear of mischievous quarrels. My five-and-twenty readers may imagine what impression such an encounter as has been related above would make on the mind of this pitiable being. The fearful aspect of those faces, the great words, the threats of a seigneur known for never threatening in vain, a system of living in quiet, the patient study of so many years upset in a moment, and, in prospect, a path narrow and rugged, from which no exit could be seen. All these thoughts buzzed about tumultuously in the downcast head of Don Abondio. If Renzo could be dismissed in peace with a mere no, it is all plain, but he would want reasons, and what am I to say to him? And, and, and he is a lamb, quiet as a lamb if no one touches him, but if he were contradicted, whew! And then, out of his senses about this Lucia, in love overhead and, these young men who fall in love for want of something to do will be married and think nothing about other people. They do not care anything for the trouble they bring upon a poor curate. Unfortunate me! What possible business had these two frightful figures to put themselves in my path and interfere with me? Is it I who want to be married? Why did they not rather go and talk with... Let me see, what a great misfortune it is that the right plan never comes into my head till it is too late. If I had but thought of suggesting to them to carry their message to... But at this point it occurred to him that to repent of not having been aider and abetter in iniquity was itself iniquitous, and he turned his angry thoughts upon the man who had come, in this manner, to rob him of his peace. He knew Don Rodrigo only by sight and by report, nor had he had to do with him further than to make a lowly reverence when he had chanced to meet him. It had fallen to him several times to defend this seigneur against those who, with subdued voice and looks of fear, wished ill to some of his enterprises. He had said a hundred times that he was a respectable cavalier. But at this moment he bestowed upon him all those epithets which he had never heard applied by others without an exclamation of disapprobation. Amid the tumult of these thoughts he reached his own door, hastily applied the key which he held in his hand, opened, entered, carefully closed it behind him, and anxious to find himself in trustworthy company, called quickly, Perpetua, Perpetua, as he went towards the dining-room, where he was sure to find Perpetua laying the cloth for supper. Perpetua, as everyone already knows, was Don Abondio's servant, a servant affectionate and faithful, who knew how to obey and command in turn as occasion required, to bear in season the grumblings and fancies of her master, and to make him bear the like when her turn came, which day by day recurred more frequently, since she had passed the synodal age of forty, remaining single because, as she said herself, she had refused all offers, 
or because she had never found any one goose enough to have her, as her friends said. "'I am coming,' replied Perpetua, putting down in its usual place a little flask of Dona Bondio's favorite wine, and moving leisurely. But before she reached the door of the dining-room, he entered, with a step so unsteady, with an expression so overcast, with features so disturbed, that there had been no need of Perpetua's experienced eye to discover at a glance that something very extraordinary had happened. "'Mercy! What has happened to you, master?' "'Nothing, nothing,' replied Dona Bondio, sinking down breathless on his armchair. "'How nothing! Would you make me believe this, so disordered as you are? Some great misfortune has happened.' "'Oh, for heaven's sake! When I say nothing, either it is nothing, or it is something I cannot tell. Not tell, even to me? Who will take care of your safety, sir? Who will advise you? Oh, dear, hold your tongue and say no more. Give me a glass of my wine. And you will persist, sir, that it is nothing, said Perpetua, filling the glass, and then holding it in her hand, as if she would give it in payment for the confidence he kept her waiting for so long. "'Give it here, give it here,' said Dona Bondio, taking the glass from her with no very steady hand, and emptying it hastily, as if it were a draught of medicine. "'Do you wish me then, sir, to be obliged to ask here and there what has happened to my master?' said Perpetua, right opposite him with her arms akimbo, looking steadily at him, as if she would gather the truth from his eyes. "'For heaven's sake, let us have no brawling,' let us have no noise it is it is my life your life my life you know sir that whenever you have told me anything sincerely in confidence i have never well done for instance when perpetua saw she had touched a wrong chord wherefore suddenly changing her tone senor master she said with a softened and affecting voice I have always been an affectionate servant to you, sir, and if I wish to know this, it is because of my care for you, because I wish to be able to help you, and give you good advice, and to comfort you. The fact was, Dona Bondio was, perhaps, just as anxious to get rid of his burdensome secret, as Perpetua was to know it. In consequence, after having rebutted, always more feebly, her reiterated and more vigorous assaults, after having made her vow more than once not to breathe the subject, with many sighs and many doleful exclamations, he repeated at last the miserable event. When he came to the terrible name, it was necessary for Perpetua to make new and more solemn vows of silence, and Dona Bondio, having pronounced this name, sank back on the chair, lifting up his hands in an act at once of command and entreaty, exclaiming, for heaven's sake! Mercy! exclaimed Perpetua. Oh, what a wretch! Oh, what a tyrant! Oh, what a godless man! Will you hold your tongue, or do you wish to ruin me altogether? Why, we're all alone. No one can hear us. But what will you do, sir? Oh, my poor master! You see now, you see, said Dona Bondio in an angry tone, what good advice this woman can give me. She comes and asks me what shall I do, what shall I do, as if she were in a quandary, and it were my place to help her out. 
but I could even give my poor opinion, but then... But then, let us hear. My advice would be, since, as everybody says, our archbishop is a saint, a bold-hearted man, and one who is not afraid of an ugly face, and one who glories in upholding a poor curate against these tyrants when he has an opportunity, I should say, and I do say, that you should write a nice letter to inform him how that— Will you hold your tongue? Will you be silent? Is this fit advice to give a poor man? When a bullet was lodged in my back, heaven defend me, would the archbishop dislodge it? Why, bullets don't fly in showers like comfits. Footnote. It is a custom in Italy, during the carnival, for friends to salute each other with showers of comfits as they pass in the streets. End footnote. Woe to us if these dogs could bite whenever they bark! And I have always taken notice that whoever knows how to show his teeth and makes use of them is treated with respect. And just because Master will never give his reasons, we are come to that pass that every one comes to us, if I may say it to— Will you hold your tongue? I will directly, but it is, however, certain that when all the world sees a man always, in every encounter, ready to yield the— Will you hold your tongue? Is this a time for such nonsensical words? Very well, you can think about it tonight. But now, don't be doing any mischief to yourself. Don't be making yourself ill. Take a mouthful to eat. Think about it, shall I? grumbled Don Abondio. To be sure, I shall think about it. I've got it to think about. And he got up, going on. I will take nothing, nothing. I have something else to do. I know, too, what I ought to think about it. But that this should have come on my head. Swallow at least this other little drop, said Perpetua, pouring it out. You know, sir, this always strengthens your stomach. Ah, we want another strengthener, another, another. So saying, he took the candle, and constantly grumbling, a nice little business to a man like me. And to-morrow what is to be done? With other like lamentations went to his chamber to lie down. When he had reached the door, he paused a moment, turned round, and laid his finger on his lips, pronouncing slowly and solemnly, For heaven's sake! and disappeared. End of chapter 1, part 2